Hey friends, before we get started with this week's news, we want to let you know about something really fun and exciting at Book Riot. We are giving away 500 bones to the bookstore of your choice. That's right, a $500 gift card to whatever bookstore you choose, you have through June 21st to enter. But of course, you should run, not walk to get that done. So go to bookriot.com slash bookstore 500. That's the number 500 to enter. Bookriot.com slash bookstore 500. Enter to win $500 to any bookstore you want. Cross your fingers and toes. Bookriot.com slash bookstore 500. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 263, recording on Thursday, May 31st. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hey, I wonder what would happen if we just were in the world of books or the world of I don't reading. know. I, I don't, I don't, books without reading, it sounds like the, the, the setup to like a fantasy novel. There are books, but you can't read them or something. I don't know. <laughs> in a <Something>. world. <laughs> in a world. Did you ever see that movie, Jenny Slate? Uh, I think it's called In a World. Oh, no. Where her, she is a aspiring um, voiceover actress. Uh-huh. And her dad, I, th- I think it's her dad, is a famous, and basically he's the guy that does the inner worlds. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, over, I love Jenny Slate. This it's fun. Great. It's fun. Yeah, Michelle and I really liked it. Um, so there's your random four-year-old indie movie recommendation to start Perfect. the show today. That's, uh, I, I appreciate that. All I've got for you is the new <laughs> Ali Wong Netflix special, which is hilarious, but might mm. make you, Jeff O'Neill, blush a little bit too much. Oh, no. Oh, I can, yep. Yeah, okay. It, it's, <laughs> yep. I know, I know what you're talking about. Uh, there's something else. 31st of May, so it's BEA time. It is. Uh, we have a bunch of book riot people at BEA wandering around, and you were talking to someone who shall remain nameless, saying they think it's their last BEA, their bookseller, or whatever. Seems like I'm a bit of a whimper of a year for BEA, from what I can tell. It's just getting started. Maybe something will. But I'm. We're both curious about uh, the future of that yeah, event. Yeah, there's uh, probably there's like half of BEA left to go at the time yeah. that we're recording this. But the big setup this year was that they were kind of like coming back to the focus of what Book Expo was originally was originally and what it's uh, continued to be intended primarily to do, which is hook up booksellers and publishers and serve booksellers with education programs and all that kind of stuff, um, and. The reports from the floor, from everyone I've talked to who's there, are basically, it feels like every other book expo ever. Um, A couple years back, it got noticeably smaller than the previous years. Um, I think, well, that was when it was in Chicago. It was smaller, and then it, I think, has continued to feel a little bit smaller, a little bit less shiny, perhaps, than it was prior to that. But sounds like it's just another, you know, bunch of book people in a convention center. Um, the Sean Spicer yeah, thing, I, I, I believe, know. is tomorrow. Oh, it hasn't happened yet, so we was. don't have follow up no. on that yet. I was thinking about um, BEA, just like what the future of it might be. If I were in charge of B- BEA, heaven forbid, you know, how might I reimagine it? Mm. I was thinking, like, what other entertainment industry events where you have a big thing once a year to get a bunch of people together? Like, what does it do? And the, the one that struck me that maybe is an interesting template is for like the television industry how they have upfronts where yeah. you know you the the networks show off their new shows talk about their continuing shows and advertisers come kind of decide what to buy kind of like 4h right you go look at the sheep and you know i like that one i don't like that one so on and so forth and one thing that's always struck me about bea is it feels like there is an opportunity so like 
for each imprint of all the publishers to do a stand-up, you know, basically mm-hmm. at a panel, like, here are the, here's our books. Instead, they're going to a catalog and catalog. Like, I don't really understand that piece of it, um, but it, it would make more sense to me. And frankly, I'd be more interested in, here's FSG for young adults, uh, 90-minute presentation about their, com- you know, their, their fall and winter catalogs, mm-hmm. and they talk about it for a few minutes. And you just go to a bunch of those. That would be actually kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, but maybe I'm know, wrong about that. They do versions of that at the regional industry trade yeah. shows. I've been to... Um, Naba, which is the new mm, new something North American, right. no Naba, Neba, whatever. There's a Mid Atlantic one. Um, sure, that's whatever. Um, I've been to that one. I've been to SEBA, which is the Southern Regional Show, and they've both had um, what they call rep picks sessions, mm. which is a smaller version of that. But it's like you know the um, the Random House rep stands up and pitch like book talks five of the titles for the upcoming season that they really mm. love. Um, and all those booksellers in the room know that rep because that's the rep for their yep. region. And so it's sort of, it feels like that custom thing. Um, mm. I think bigger versions of that would be really interesting at book expo and informative like for us as members of the book media. But I, yeah. I would think, I would think also for booksellers or librarians, folks who are trying to decide what to stock in, yeah you know, the place they sell or recommend books, that would be super useful. I know tomorrow, I think it's tomorrow on the program, there's like a publicist speed dating event. I'm not sure if that's media facing or bookseller facing, but also a chance to like very quickly hear about what some people are pushing. And then there's what the BEA buzz panel, the editor's yeah. buzz panel, but that's curated. It's like five it's, books. It's like, yeah, or, I mean, it's, it's five a, books. Whatever. There's like a, the process for getting onto that panel is like as secretive as the Nobel prize committee (laughs) and probably just as corrupt um, potentially. Um, Yeah. I think, I mean, I would at this point, at least in my book career, I would prefer to go like, listen to someone be like, here's what we're doing with the riverhead catalog for the fall. These are the highlights. Here are some of the, like the thematic through lines, if that's a thing. Um, that kind of stuff is more interesting to me than like stand in line to meet an author for 25 seconds and get an autographed galley. Yeah, And right. that's super not use Like that's not useful or informative for someone who's trying to decide what kind of books to put in their bookstore or what to put on the shelves of their library. If, if, I mean, I think that's one thing that, I, again, we we're, we're a small company and, but we cover books exclusively. So we're there and have been there as media members. And it certainly doesn't cater to media. And I'm not suggesting it should except that you have a chance to have, I mean, most of media is in New York or can get to New York easily. Like, get get, get us and Bustle and Entertainment Weekly and the Washington Post and the New York Times Book Review, like all the people in Paste Magazine and like whoever runs Reese, Reese Witherspoon's, you know, book club and Book of the Month, all the people that pick those, like all of those other people that cover books and can move units through coverage, those are people you get in that room, in that building, in that city that you don't get at the regional independent bookseller. And mm-hmm. you get the librarians to come in and things like that. So may, may, if the regional bookseller things are more useful, what is the point of getting a bunch of publishing together to get a bunch of other people together? Who are the other people that you could serve and get some value out of? That makes sense to me. Now, you could do this, you could do that thing in a much smaller venue. You don't need a jillion booths. You could just have, you know, a couple of, um, you know, halls, concert, kind of a yeah, almost like a, I don't even know what it would be. You just need a few big rooms, you know, where 200 people can sit and you have a bunch of concurrent sections and people pick where they go if they're covering kids or YA or whatever else it might be. 
like use it as a bullhorn for what's coming out for the wider world. Um, it doesn't seem to me to be put together. It seems like the atomic, the, the molecular molecular unit of BEA right now is sort of a one-on-one situation, whereas I feel like that doesn't make any sense anymore um, to me. But that's that's my opinion, and thank God I don't have to run. <laughs> um, so there's a, let's do our first sponsor. I've got some follow-up, and we got follow-up to this. We got follow-up to Nobel. You just jogged my memory. We got a Nobel oh, follow-up thing right. to do. Um, so tell me about uh, our first sponsor. Our first sponsor this week is StoryWorth. Everyone has a family member who tells the best stories, and StoryWorth makes it easy and fun for you and your loved ones to share those stories. So here's how it works. You purchase a subscription for someone you love, and every week, StoryWorth emails them a question about their life. They reply with a story, either by email email, on the web, or in the StoryWorth app. And after a year, all of their stories are bound into a beautiful hardcover printed book. It's a black and white interior with a color cover. Don't worry, all your data is secure and everything is kept private. But you end up with a year's worth of stories from one of your family members collected all in one place. This is a great way to connect with your family. You can bridge geographic distance and learn more about your relatives. Plus, StoryWorth makes it easy to preserve your memories and pass them on to children and their future families. This makes a great gift for Father's Day, which is coming up and might be kind of a last-minute purchase for you. And you can get $20 off when you subscribe with or by visiting storyworth.com slash book riot. Um, I think I mentioned when they sponsored the show um, maybe a month or so ago, right before Mother's Day, that um, they had sponsored all the books a year or two ago and Liberty and I had a like a sample membership mm-hmm. so that we could test out how it worked. And it was actually pretty cool um, to get the prompts. The questions weren't necessarily things we would have thought to ask each other. And um, I think most of us have the sense that there's somebody in our lives that like, oh, I, I do want to, I want to know them a little bit better, or I'd like to know more about this thing. And if that person is close enough to you to be into doing something like this, it'd be cool to end up with a book of all those stories at the end. Or if you have an older relative, you can get multiple copies of the book. So you could have one for like all of the kids or all of the grandkids or something. Uh, so if you're in the market, this is great, you know, especially going into Father's Day, but really anytime. It's again, storyworth.com slash book riot for $20 off when you subscribe. Let's do some follow-up, um, Nobel follow-up. Uh, at the end of our last annotated episode, and I think we covered, or not our last one, but um, the two ago where we covered the Nobel crisis is the name of the episode. I'll put the link in the show notes. Talked about how um, the Swedish Academy, which awards the Nobel Prize in Literature, had said that there will be no 2018 award, and they would award two mm. in 2019. Um and now that is in doubt because... Oh, I didn't know this. Yes, this is new. Uh, like, I think yesterday or the day before. Um, the chairman of the Nobel Foundation... So this is... We're in the weeds here a little bit. So the Swedish Academy decides who wins the award. They pick the winner. And the Nobel Foundation is responsible for the fulfillment of Alfred Nobel's will, right? So the mm-hmm. Alfred Nobel's will picked the Swedish Academy to pick the, the literature award, but the foundation does all the you know, the ceremony and the give, writing the check and all that stuff. And I'm a little unclear, and I, and I know you're going to be shocked about the, exactly how the connective <laughs> tissues between these things work, but the chairman of the Nobel Foundation has said, unless they can get their S together, basically, and restore some trust in this thing, there, you know, he's not confident that there will be a, a laureate in 2019. Mm. Um, 
And I don't, you know, I'm not sure. It's not clear from a couple of articles. The link, the one I'm looking at is in The Guardian. I'll put it in the show notes. And there was another one in The Times, too. It's not clear what, if any, authority the foundation has to alter who does the awarding because it's uh, explicit in Alfred Nobel's will that it should be the Swedish Academy. They'd have to go, I mean, I mean, the Swedish Academy could sue, it'd go to court. All this stuff is getting into court. But this is another... I don't know, an, another move that suggests that big-time change is coming to the Nobel Prize for Literature, especially the Swedish Academy. We still don't know the mechanism by which the Swedish Academy could change its bylaws, even if it wanted to, as outlined, in, and I'm not going to go out here, go listen to the Nobel Prize if you want to hear the nitty-gritty of how this thing works. But, you know, the central problem is everyone's looking at each other like, we got to do something, but we don't know how to do anything. Um, but this is more a fuel to the fire. And that's what I was wondering when, I, I guess we talked about on this show, like, the central problem hasn't been fixed. The, the Swedish Academy say we're going to delay all they want. They still have the same problem next year. Like nothing's changed right. that would make 2019 any more legitimate or easier or whatever. Um, so anyway, I thought I'd give a quick update there. Yeah, you still have to die to get off the committee. So yeah, I don't know still got to die. <laughs> I mean, weirdly, the, the the way out would be for like, like four of these people. That, no, they can't collect new members because they need 12. So they can't even, mm-hmm. people dying to get off doesn't even help them now. So, you know, I guess, the, I, I guess I'm going to start covering this until we get a court case or something. Like, in, until there's a bylaw change, like King Gustav actually, you know, swings his ceremonial scepter and changes the bylaws, <laughs> or it ends up in, you know, the, 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 in uh, Stockholm's circuit quarter. I don't even know how the Swedish justice system works. I mean, I, I read all the Girl the Dragon tattoo stuff, and I still don't know. Um, <laughs> Steve Larson I mean, the, totally the third, the, the, the third book is all in the courts. It's, it's, anyway, that's, a, that's another different <laughs> rant. Um, but but there oh, we go. Buddy. That's like right under the surface, though. That one was ready. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, everyone has some sort of festering rants that don't have an outlet. So, I mean, how many times do I talk about the Swedish court system in public? Like, this is the first and probably only time I'll do it. <laughs> uh, so there we go. I mean, it's another person saying this, another leverage, another wall closing in on the Swedish Academy. Um, I'd be, it, I guess that's, I hadn't really thought about that except in passing to say, I wonder what the Nobel Foundation could do, though no one mm. knows. But if they said, we're switching, that would be interesting. <laughs> like, we're going to go with this other yeah. academy, or we're going to go with this other body, or we're going to form our own body. Um, that, would, like, that, that would be fascinating. If the rules are so tight and strange that they can't really switch anything without King Gustav stepping in or going against Alfred Nobel's will in some way. Like I decided to run down the slippery slope of like, what if they just never have a Nobel prize in literature again, (laughs) you know, like, or if you wait long enough, like if they can't do it in 2019, can they do it in 2020? How many years can you take off before people just don't care anymore? You know, it's like the friend who just disappears for a while, like you can come back after a little bit, but if they're gone for too long, like then it's weird. And then you don't care. Except and, or it would be huge news. Right. Cause like would the prize money roll over? Like if there's not one in 10 oh. years is a $10 million check or like, like the in, lottery or like in 10 years, do they give 10 awards oh, all in one year to make yeah. up for it? But I, I decided to, I was thinking about like, what would happen if they just didn't like, if there was, if there were no Nobel prize in literature, what if the again? Nobel for literature, but not, Right, or just yeah, like yeah. Di- if it just stopped existing, <laughs> would that really affect books and reading? I I don't really think it would. Um, yeah, okay, so this has been your installment of Robert's Rules of Order. Um, <laughs> let's see, more Everybody follow-up. loves that. Yeah, everyone. Uh, listener response to Waterstone's faux indies move. Um, divided, not surprisingly. Um, 
you know, I think I think there was a lot of wrestling in the comments and Book Ride Insiders and email and some uh, tw- tweets I got about like the deception. I think is is the strong for me the strongest critique. Um, mm. Why not call it Waterstones? I think is a really interesting question. Like, do the same thing that you would do anyway as a as a faux indie, but call it Waterstones. Um, which I think is a really interesting point because how much are they trading upon people's belief, understanding, and or ignorance of what they're walking into? Mm-hmm. If it's called, you know, Jimmy's books um, on some side street that looks like, you know, they have Ella Fitzgerald playing and they have blonde hardwood floors and, you know, all, all the things you would expect. I'm, I'm now thinking of an American independent bookstore. I don't know what British independent bookstores look like, but I'm sure there's some version of it. If they're doing all that stuff, um, why not just call it Waterstones and let the, let it shake out? Do people like that better? Like it just as well? I mean, it's one of those interesting things. Like, what is it that people are looking for, and then why not give them that? But with the is there is there a truth in advertising case uh, to be made? Does that make sense? What I do mean, you think I, about that? Hmm. I und- I guess I understand that argument, but I don't I don't share the upset about it. Like I understand how people got there. Like, but you're being, you know, you're being lied to. You think you're going into an indie. Well, I don't know what the numbers are in the UK, but like if they did that in the US, if Barnes and Noble decided to open like a bunch of bookstores that they called Rebecca's bookshop, um, like what it's like indies have about 6% of the book selling market in Mm -hmm. the US. So what 6% of the book buying public actively seeks out independent bookstores. Um, How many of the people that walked into a Rebecca's bookshop on any given day would be there because they thought it was an indie. And then they'd be mad when they found out it was owned by Barnes and Noble versus somebody else. Like I've tried to think about this in some other industry. Like if McDonald's opened a high end series of like small boutique burger joints, Mm. you know, that they called something else. Would I care? Well, Chipotle, right, is a good example. I think Chipotle started out as a McDonald's joint. Yeah. Like it was just burritos and they called it something. I I could be wrong about this, but let's play the game you went down, which is it's a Chipotle thing, but you didn't know it was owned by McDonald's. Were you being, should it be called, um, Tex Mix or something like I don't even right. know what else would or be like better for that. Burritos by McDonald's. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah, right. right. Like if McDonald's opened boutique burger places that I didn't know were owned by McDonald's, would I care or would I just be going to get no. a good burger the way that I would just be walking into a bookstore to like get a good recommendation and pick up the book that I was looking for? Like I just I guess but I just don't care the, enough. Yeah. <laughs> enough. The counter like, is that you say I guess you could use the same logic to say if it doesn't matter just call it Waterstones. True. If it does matter, if it doesn't matter, then why are you doing it? Mm-hmm. Why are you calling it Rebecca's Bookshop? Right. Clearly, by doing that, you think it does matter. Yeah. Which sort of would bolster the false advertising claim, right? <laughs> like, they think it matters enough not to call it Waterstones that they're not calling it Waterstones Books. Yeah. Which I, which like, I think is interesting. But I think if it's you're an interesting idea. a different experience than you get walking into a big Waterstones, oh, I, I right. understand, you know, I understand it, like... There's, I yeah. wish I could remember who it was now. I think there was a clothing brand that did this in the, I, sometime in the last decade that was like a, a brand on par with like the Gap or something. And they opened a bunch of stores like owned by that parent company, but that were smaller, like the same idea, smaller, uh-huh. boutique It was supposed to be more like hip or eco-conscious. I can't remember all the details, but like that 
that was if you looked it was you could find out that they were connected was that free people free people was that it maybe maybe i think they were owned by anthropology or something like that but it was way more expensive yeah and it wasn't same idea yeah something like that you know where you're getting it's a different experience the clothes are Mm. different um maybe they're made in the same factory as gap jeans or whatever i'm not positive it was the gap but you're looking for something different like it's a little it, okay, it's undeniably deceptive. I am not sure that the deception is bad. Well, I'm not even sure it's deception. It's just different. Like, it's branding, right? So, like, it's a branding idea. Because I think your point is well taken. Like, people who know Waterstones is is certainly more well-known than um, uh, Rebecca's bookshop. And so you want to give people a sense of what they're walking into. Don't call it Waterstones because it ain't. It's not like that. It's not a big store. It's like calling if Barnes and Noble did this and you just called it a regular Barnes and Noble and it's like a thousand square feet, people are like, what the hell is going right. on with this? Maybe, maybe the middle ground is to call it Rebecca's bookshop, but there's a chain of them and they're all called Rebecca's bookshop. And you start building branding around this. So mm-hmm. people know what to expect when they walk in there. I think the Venn diagram of people who care enough that the thing is locally owned and indie, but then also wouldn't know it's indie. It's not indie. It's kind of a small one. Like I'm sure yeah. there's a slice of that, but I like, what actual person are we talking about that's being quote unquote misled? Or right. Does this unquote, person yeah. exist? Yeah, I'm sure there yeah. are some, but like, again, <laughs> I, I hear the criticism or the, the anxiety or the, the outcry from independent booksellers. That I understand because this is, don't blow up our spot. Like you are who mm-hmm. you are and let's, let's compete head on. I guess I'm, I'm more interested, I, I'm sympathetic to that argument, but I guess I don't care from my own point of view because I'm not an infinite bookseller. I'm just more interested in the larger, like I'm thinking from a fan's, reader's, buyer's perspective, like what would I be mad about? And I guess unless I was really deceived into thinking that there was someone named Rebecca running this thing and they owned it and they've had it for 35 years, then other than that, I, from a branding perspective, it makes sense. But I think those are the kind of the fault lines in the follow-up that I saw. Um, you know, a lot of people too said, and remembers like, I don't know why they have to do this next to other independent bookstores. There's a lot of other places that could use a bookstore and that I'm very sympathetic mm-hmm. to. I mean, there's places that could use a bookstore, but that's not like a Barnes and Noble or a Waterstones. And so a smaller footprint and or format might make a lot of sense. And people would welcome that in their community because they got nothing. Um, so that, that's the upside, I guess, is that Waterstones, like if we have a different format that doesn't have as much overhead, it's, it's not as wheel unwieldy, we can open them quicker, we can sustain them with lower sales because of the area they're in, that would be a win. But that's not what they're doing. They're sort of trying to poach the highest trafficked areas where other independents have already set up shops. So which I think is, it's kind of, you know, it, it's yucky capitalism, but no worse than yucky capitalism. It's not criminal. It's not legal or anything <laughs> else like that. Um, all right. I guess that's our follow-up. Yeah. Yes. Where do you want to go next? You know, let's, we have like a couple head scratchery kinds of things. And the first one, um, this week is the Man Booker Prize is celebrating, going into 2019, they'll be celebrating the 50th year, the golden year. And so they are doing uh, the Man Booker, the Golden Man Booker Prize shortlist um, to identify winning books, to showcase winning books from the Man Booker history that have best stood the test of time. These have been selected by the prize's five judges. Um, Each judge picked one and they're going to announce the big winner from among these five on uh, July 8th this summer at the Man Booker 50 Festival, which will happen in London. So 
here are the five titles in a free state by vs naipaul moon tiger by penelope lively the english patient by michael ondaatje uh, Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel and Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders. So my, on first glance, I was like, none of these books are even that old. The Naipaul is the oldest. It's from 1971, but then the Man Booker Prize originated in 1969. So that's pretty old in the life of this prize. It's definitely old enough to have stood the test of time. Um, yeah. The Penelope Lively book is from 1970 or 1987. The English Patient is somewhere later in there, but Wolf Hall is relatively recent. And then Lincoln in the Bardo? Last year. How has it stood the test of any time? <laughs> uh, it's a great question. I mean, I guess whatever time it's been allotted, it's withstood, weirdly. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, so uh, interesting list of books. I mean, you could do worse for literary fiction than to read these books. I think that stood the test of time is just dumb marketing. Like, they shouldn't have said that. They shouldn't Correct. have said they shouldn't have like that should not be the criteria because Lincoln and the Bardo competing with um Naipaul is ridiculous in terms of who was stood the, by that logic um the Naipaul is 35 times better than Lincoln and the Bardo <laughs> Lincoln and the Bardo it's um and just most like, outstanding. I mean, I guess. Just right, or like that. memorable or even just judges favorites like would be interesting. Um, no. I think also I'm mostly by quibble, and this is really just a thing that's fun to quibble at because sometimes we do that, is this bit about having stood the test of time and then seeing Lincoln in the Bardo. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's on tough. There. Like, that's, that's tough a, to take. That's a new book. It hasn't stood the test of time. There's been no time. Like, I love George <laughs> Saunders, but come on, man. I, like, I feel like somewhere George Saunders is also making the Scooby-Doo noise in his brain of like... <laughs> Come on, man. You know that's not yeah. right yet. Like, if he wins, is he? What's he going to say? Like, thank you for honoring this book of mine that has endured two years. It doesn't make any sense. And there's also this like very well actually part of me that remembers um, in Clive Thompson's book that I love called Smarter Than You Think. He goes on about how like things that have lasted a long time, like the idea that the idea that something that has stood the test of time, like equating that to it must be good then um, is not necessarily true. You know, it also stands the test of time. Herpes simplex one. Right. It just means it's lasted a long time. Like we had the, you know, we had telephones with landlines for a really long time before Mm -hmm. we got digital technology, but no one would be like, you know, the landline, it really stood the test of time. (laughs) I don't think I, I don't think I want my iPhone. Let me come at you from this angle. What if you're Marlon James and you're like, you won in 2015 and you're like, God, I didn't even stand three years. (laughs) I'm out. That was it. It's all over for me. Yeah. I got three years. I'm done. (laughs) Screw you, Saunders. That's a weird phrase. <laughs> Whatever. The other thing, it's not a quibble, it's just a, a, a picadillo of my brain, is I keep seeing this and thinking it's the golden snitch. Like, they should get the golden <laughs> snitch for winning the golden booker. Like, it's a golden what exactly? The, 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 it's, anyway. But right, maybe it's just, you know, because snitch. of 50. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, hard to, I can't care, except that I uh, criticize. <laughs> I, the only thing I care about is the critique of this. Like, if there was just said for most outstanding winners of the last 50 years, I'd be like, yeah, okay. Fine. Yeah, it was just one of those things. It came across my desk, and I was like, oh, wh- "What? <laughs> yeah. Why <laughs> like, do this?" The other question is, "Why do this? Like, why? Why like go through your winners and that? And then you kind of just make like forty-five winners feel bad. It's like, oh man, I won the Booker, but I didn't get picked for this. It's like, it seems weird to me. Um, 
I guess 50 years, it's a good publicity thing to talk about. Um, but it does seem strange to me to like sort of, okay, here are all the winners, but we're going to pick the best of you guys. And the rest of you are just sort of like mistakes or not as good. Sorry, guys. That's not cool. <laughs> you, you're, you were good enough to win, but we're not sure about your longevity. Yeah. <laughs> like suddenly, suddenly your man Booker prize is now an honorable mention. Like how did this happen? Yeah, that that is, that's a good point. Like we haven't seen sort of the, the best of the national book award. Yeah. (laughs) You know, yeah, that's okay. I mean, I guess you and I over time are less and less interested in best ofs as like, this is like some objective, like accounting of here are the best of these finite numbers. Well, whatever, you know, this is a little bit of BEA connection too, but Amanda tweeted about it yesterday. So I feel fine talking about it, but attended a panel at BEA that was about the crisis of literary criticism in which five people who were all white and much older than we are, um, Mm. sat on a panel lamenting, like literally lamenting as a serious problem, the ways that the internet is killing the publications that, have done serious literary criticism and how by these people's measure, um, people just don't, there are no serious readers anymore of serious mm. literature um, mm. and reviewers of serious literature don't have jobs and they aren't like someone actually complained about the Washington Post's pay rate for a book mm. review, which is I think $350, um, which is more than you're going to make from, a website that asks you to write a book review almost definitely. Um, but the, the notion of like, but someone who will tell the people what to read if there's no, if there are no (laughs) best ofs, Jeff and no literary criticism, how will we get by? I mean, there is, I'm salty today. I don't want to get wound up about this because (laughs) I really don't don't want to. You don't Um, have a festering rant about this one. Well, I have a historical rant, which is that book reviews are actually a relatively recent invention in the history of literature, and I don't know. Like, <laughs> Wind them up and watch them go. Well, it's just, okay, you know, ain't no one reviewing Shakespeare. It just didn't, and it turned out okay. Uh, so I, I don't get that worked up in that regard. I think there's an interesting story to be told about how literary publications got disrupted in a very, in, in, in the, using the technology, like the, um, what's the innovator's dilemma, Clayton Christensen's sort of model of disruption, where they were stable, they were stayed, they didn't innovate, they were expensive, um, they weren't reacting to the times, and other things came up and disrupted them from below. Below meaning not in terms of um, quality necessarily, but in terms of other features that that particular industry incumbent didn't see as useful, right? Which was uh, coverage of multiple genres, backlist, uh, you know, you go on and on about the what, what crowdsourced quote-unquote reviews or other kinds of coverage does. Um, we intentionally, from the very beginning of Book Riot, I don't want to make this about what these dudes said versus us because it's really not that, but like we said, we're not going to run reviews of a single title as a single post because A, there were traditional outlets, and B, Goodreads was kind of what you could do with that in Amazon reviews in terms of like a Rotten Tomatoes kind of thumbs up or thumbs down thing. That is kind of done. And review beyond that, like, what is the point of a review beyond that? Is it literary criticism? Like, that's another thing that gets inflated. What's a review and what's a criticism? And what is the function of either? And should every book get a criticism? Probably not. Literary criticism is alive and well in the academy. So I I, I don't know. I I guess if your job was to write $1,000 reviews 50 times a year for the New York Times, sucks to be you. I get that. Does it say anything about the future of books and reading? 
I think probably not. Um, is it different? Yes. Worse? No. I don't know. It's not even a rant. Like I can't even. That's how. That's how like resigned. I, does that <laughs> I make know. sense? Like, it's yeah. almost better that it's not a rant. It's some, or a, more an indictment of the position that I can't even rant about. It's just, I, I, I just am not there. Um, but I did never had a job writing reviews. I was never a midlist literary author who, you know, a difference in sales in the New York Times book review was real and that your career could get made by having good reviews in the book sections of the Washington Post or the Dallas Morning News or the places that don't really have that much coverage or as much coverage as they once did anymore. I don't know. But young adult authors and science fiction and fantasy authors and kids books authors make a lot more money now and they're more, is that worse? I I have a hard time saying that's true. Um, I don't know. Is that what you wanted to hear from me? You got what you wanted out of me. I know. I see what you're doing. <laughs> you're like, I got to go to the bathroom. I'm going to tee this one up for Jeff. <laughs> I'm just, just going to hit the mute button for a minute. <laughs> paint my toenails. <laughs> <sighs> but don't you feel better? No, I don't. I, <laughs> it's not like popping a, a zit. That one's just, that's there. I mean, I don't know what to do about that. Um, oh, it just, it just festers and then it festers some more. It just smolders, you know? It is, it's a smoldering. It's true. It's it is, like, yeah, it's just always there. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know uh, quite how we got here, door. but best ofs are weird. Yeah, you take this one. Well, actually, you know, let's do another sponsor because uh, we're going to take a few minutes for the next one too because this one, uh, I, will be, I will be more um, exasperatedly confused about the next story than this one. Uh, our next sponsor, In the Distance with You by Carla Guelfenbein is our next sponsor. Here you go. This is a Chilean literary thriller, and it tells the story of three lives intertwined with that of an enigmatic author whose character is inspired by the groundbreaking Brazilian writer uh, Clarice Lispector. Three figures gather around the comatose body of a legendary Latin American writer. As Daniel, Emilia, and Horatio tell their stories, they reconstruct Vera's past, trying in different ways, and before it's too late to unveil the dying woman's secrets, spanning from modern-day Chile to the 1950s, 60s, and through the years of the Pinochet dictatorship, in the distance with you reveals successive mysteries and discoveries like a set of Russian nesting dolls. The main character, as it says, is based on the Clarice Lispector. Um, her biographer, uh, Benjamin Moser, has praised the book. Um, within the distance with you, Carla Guelfenbein has created a truly thrilling book about books, a novel about the spell great writers cast on either side of the grave that's in the distance with you from other press out now oh you know that people love a thrilling book about books oh it's good i like it i like it a great it's deal. a good line okay in so uh how to frame this i guess uh, yeah okay so i guess to start with how about the story jeff tell the people what you're actually going to talk about so the story came out this week um that an accountant for a top literary agency, uh, Donadio and Olson, embezzled clients, the, the agency's clients, of at least $3.4 million <sighs> over many years. And he has now been indicted and is facing 20 years in jail on wire fraud charges. Um, the agency represents, I mean, this is a big time agency, the estates of Mario Puzo, mm-hmm. Studs Terkel, um, this, it was Candida, founded, yeah, I was gonna say yeah. Candida, a former secretary, this sounds like an annotated episode, it weirdly, does. this person, Candida Donaldo, a former secretary from Brooklyn, who shot to fame in the late 1950s after she sold J- Joseph Heller's Cash 22 in Philip Roth's Goodbye Columbus, as we talked about last week, to publishers, 
Um, also uh, represented Thomas Pynchon. But this story really was broken and amplified um, because... Now, how do we say this guy's name now? Palinuk. Palinuk? Yeah, okay, mm-hmm. good. I was going to say that, but thank you for... Chuck Palinuk made a public post about he was a victim. A, a one of, a high, you know, basically mm-hmm. hadn't been paid in years, um, close to bankruptcy personally. Like, this is a guy that's, you know, Fight Club and a whole bunch of, has a mm-hmm. huge following, goes on huge author tours. Yeah, the agency is and, on the brink of bankruptcy as well. Yeah, and, and, and Chuck, and you can kind of read between the lines because the precipitating moment of this was, uh, it says in the, the articles about it that a big-time author who recently got a $200,000 advance asked where their money was and wasn't, get, wasn't getting it. And it, it sounds like that was the straw that book broke the camel's back. And if you kind of put two and two together, Chuck's outspokenness about this, his book, Adjustment Day, just came out, actually did some ads with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and there aren't that many people that can get a $200,000 $200, advance, yeah. but Chuck is one of them. And so if you just kind of put the pieces together, it sounds like maybe this was the thing that he's been trying to figure out what's going on, and this maybe is the thing that pushed it over the edge. Now, how does this happen? Why, you know, how does it work this way? I think for me, as much as anything, like people embezzle, people are bad. Like That's not news to me. But the structure that allowed this to happen is fascinating and weird to me. So... I guess how it works most of the time for authors and agents is that the publisher pays the agent and then the agent takes their cut and passes the money through to the author. Is yes. that your understanding? Do I have that basically right? Correct. That is what I understand. As now, well. there are royalty statements are weird, notoriously fuzzy. Is that fair, Rebecca? Do I have that right? You know, it's hard to so. know. It, you know, you have one source of information from the publisher. So a lot of books don't earn out, so there are yeah. royalties that are. Like, all I ever see publicly about royalty statements is authors. Like, actually, one showed up in my Instagram feed earlier mm. this week of an author posting a royalty check for, like, $6.47. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, just over here, swimming in royalties. So, um, in that situation where the agency is the intermediary between the publisher and the author, I can see that it's ripe for... Um, bad behavior, especially when the author is told or knows or sort of just through the ether that there aren't, you don't expect much royalties, right? Because your advance, if you get any royalties, great, but most of you can expect it. So if your royalty is $6 a quarter and the agent, if an accountant embezzles 20% of that, you're probably not going to, your alarm bells between 871 and 614 aren't really going to go off, right? Right. But when you're expecting a $200,000 advance, even minus the agency's 15%, and you get nothing, th- then you're like, well, yeah, that's this pretty is pretty noticeable. Right. That's, that's not really nice. So you can see how it happened. What I don't understand, there's a lot, of, there's a lot to not understand about this. Um, you know, not to put any blame at Chuck, but these are just honest questions. Like, was he seeing royalty statements at all? And just assuming that, you know, the, the, the story he was getting was true, it was like, you know, Chuck, the royalties for Fight Club have dried up. Hmm. Uh, or they're way down, you're getting something, but you're not getting as much as you once did. Um, your, your other books didn't earn out, and you're trickling through. And how many other authors have been victimized by this? Um, and they say they're, they're, they have a forensic accountant, which is both the most exciting and most boring sort of job together at once, um, where you get to go see, you know, you comb through ledgers to see where, where the wrongdoing is. Like $3.4 million minimum, it sounds like, 
the chances that this could be a lot more, even an order of magnitude more, are pretty high here. Yeah. Well, and it notes that the stolen money was allegedly lifted between January 2011 and March of this year of 2018. So that's seven years, seven plus years to steal $3.4 million. And you've got clients on the books like the Mario Puzo estate and the Studs Terkel estate that like who knows who's watching those yes, and what might've been taken right. from them. Like this is also possible because as you were saying, like an author who was expecting a big advance, which is not very common, um, noticed that a big amount of money had not appeared <laughs> to mm-hmm. him. Um, and it, it makes you wonder, um, what else, like where else the money has, where else money has gone missing from yeah. what other accounts that the agency represents and um, how closely watched those are or not, um, as it were. Like, it seems to me that this is also a case, like if you've got the Mario Puzo estate on mm. the books and you think like they've got money coming in from all over the place, presumably because of what the Godfather was yeah. like, like whoever's running the Mario Puzo estate looks at a lot of statements about mm-hmm. a lot of things. If you're the accountant who is, going to be skimming money off the top. Like you should maybe just be going from now I'm providing tips for criminals. That's what we're doing here. <laughs> like, like go for those accounts. Like don't do the living guy. Who's going to notice that his $200,000 didn't show up. Well, like, it does suggest like in a lot of these embezzlement fraud pyramid scheme kind of cases that things get out of hand, right? It starts mm-hmm. out like, you know, you're going to, you found an angle. I can skim 5% off and no one will know, which would probably be true, but it doesn't end that way because I go take this, I get into debt to somebody else. Like, and suddenly that you got to the point where you just couldn't cut Chuck a check for the amount means you screwed up, you're screwing up. Like, yeah. you, you, you done wrong and you're doing wrong um, in that particular sense. So, I mean, I'm glad it's come out, but it is curious, like, how did they get to the point where they had such, in, such an information dissymmetry with their clients, but even with that information dissymmetry, they still got, you know, outed. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was just a bright line saying, this can't be right. Like, what is going on right. with this? What's going on here? Like, who noticed first? How did they start figuring it out? Yeah. The, like, this investigation, I think, will be fascinating. I will watch a one-hour episode of American oh, Greed about yes, this. definitely. <laughs> if they make um, it. Um, but it really sucks um, that this yeah, has suck. happened, yeah. you know, that it would happen to anybody. Um, but really, like, just, just not cool. I was expressing surprise in uh, our internal Slack about like I, I didn't I know what agents do and I know how important they are mm. to authors and they they advocate them in a, a variety of ways that are super important and they earn I think agents earned every penny um, for most authors of of, of their fifteen percent or whatever their negotiated rate is. What I didn't know is that the agent got paid by the publisher and then the agent disperses the money to the author. I would have thought it's more like the agent gets you know the the pub the author gets their money and they owe whatever their person, they, they cut a check to the agent, not vice versa. Um, which, you know, I was surprised by. I wouldn't be super comfortable with that myself, but I do mm-hmm. my own taxes. So, you right. know, not everyone wants to do it with that. I would be much more comfortable getting my check from Norton or FSG or Knopf or whoever else it would be and then cutting, you know, have a statement sent to my agent or whatever, like, here's what we got and I'll get, cut you a check. But like, I want to be cutting the checks to my agent. I don't want the agent to be cutting checks to me. And again, you got to trust somebody, right? I guess, you know, you need your agent to, to advocate for you. And if you don't trust them with your money, I can see the argument that maybe they shouldn't be your agent. Sure, I could get behind that. Um, and that, you know, they can do things, for, they can advocate on your behalf. But I would think 
your agent would be a better advocate for you if in order for them to get paid, you got to get paid first. I want to get paid first is I guess what I'm saying here uh, and disperse the money that way. But that's interesting. This is, there's a lot of potential for little birdies to tell us things about mm-hmm. this particular story. If you're an agent or an author or you know something that would illuminate, uh, correct or otherwise amend what we've said here, choose an email podcast at bookriot.com. I hope Chuck gets some relief. Um, yeah. This agency deserves to go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, this person sounds like they belong in jail. I mean, I don't know the evidence, but boy, on its face, it seems like uh, that should be it. Um, and now I really do want to do. An, I, do, I just want to write an annotated episode about that woman who Candida Donadio published uh, Catch Twenty Two. Yeah, how did that? That's a good story. Uh, that's our show. Right. Is it our show? Well, that's our show. Let's do a quick. Oh, it's not our show. Okay, it's go not for our it. show. Yeah, Just one good thing. Here's one yes. good thing. Oh yes, this yes. Week. You're so good about ending us on a high note. Thank you. I try. I try. You know, we just all need something. So mm. I saw this week on GoodEReader.com, and we'll drop a link in here that libraries in the United States have added thirty thousand new library card registrations Mm. in just the first four months of this year due to the Libby app, Mm. which allows you to, like, if you have a library card, you can log in and use your library card to borrow books digitally. But if you don't have a library card, you can get the app and you can apply for one and get it from your local library right there in the app. And it is as easy as they say it is. Um, They have advertised with us, but our shared love for Libby, especially your love for Libby, is genuine Mm -hmm. uh, and well-known. And I just think that's great. 30,000 new library card registrations in four months because of an app that made it easy and more possible for people. Not sponsored this week by Livy, but nope. we have been sponsored in the past. That is a remarkable yes. number. I wouldn't have known what to guess. Um, I wouldn't have either. But that's you that's Seems moving like to me. That's getting I, I've heard not a not uh, a non zero number of people while I'm at my local branch sort of talking with um, librarians at my local branch about how to use Libby. They like mm. bring in their iPad and they're trying to get all set up. Like it's definitely a thing. And again, maybe if we hadn't done spots for it, I wouldn't notice it. But my, I'm primed to notice Libby yes. mentions out in the wild. But I think with an iPad, especially, or a tablet of some kind, I'm sure it's available. I'm sure Libby is. Well, I don't, I'm not sure. Sometimes it doesn't happen. But I'm sure the, uh, audiobooks and ebooks on an iPad is pretty great, to mm-hmm. Libby, I got to say. Um, I can see how people like it. That's our show. That's our show. Email us. Podcast at bookriot.com. I would like if you're at BEA or an industry person that's interested in thinking about BEA and what it could be and couldn't be, drop us a line about that. Especially anything really that you want, but especially interested in that. Also, if you have um, I guess sort of logistical knowledge about payments between agents and authors and what industry standards are or aren't. Um, any background color and context you could give us for this ongoing story. We're going to be following this one, I think, for a little while. I, there's, I think this is, in terms of shoe droppings, we've got, we've got a centipede situation here, a lot of shoes and a lot of feet um, that could come down the pike. Rebecca, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.